Hi everyone, welcome to another edition of Sparm Chatter, this one being live right now and eventually will be uploaded to a podcast. Um, this evening, or one of you listen, we'll be joined by Ellie Fisher, who will leave on Twitter at ADDE Rabbi, I believe, so we'll let him ask him about where the, where the handle came from, um, who he is a rabbi, I think he's, I think he's PhD student, I have to ask him. And he's a translator. We'll be talking to him about translating. He does a lot of translation work. Um, and he recently does work for, he also translates and he's involved with we'll talk to him about that and his own Hamape, I think it's called Project as well. Uh, let's see if he is coming on. Oh, did he? So he says, someone says here, he built the area of the University of Maryland. I didn't know that, so I guess I'll have to ask him on I, I think I think he just gave a, 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 some, a speech about that now. I think so. So we, we, we can ask him about where he's, uh, why he's up so late in Eretz Yisrael. So I'll, I'll, I'll notate that over here. Um, I'm not sure where he is. I guess figuring out. I'm sure he'll be here in a second. If anyone obviously has any questions? Oh, well, I didn't know that. So if anyone has any questions, feel free, obviously, to... Type them over here once he gets on. Um, let's find out where he is. Nope, don't see him yet. Okay, he's not on yet. Maybe he's getting on. Does anyone have any other questions about any yes Um <sighs> He does like the IKEA Billy bookcase. I think he's posted about it. By the way, I would do um, some other solo shows. I was talking to someone about. Sparim, but uh, there's really nothing coming out right now. Very little uh, of anything that's of interest. Um, I don't know when anyone will listen to this podcast episode, but as of right now, uh, when it's live, oh, you can't join. Why not? Okay, so he says he can't join. Oh, there he goes. Now he joins. Yeah, Beagle hasn't sent a box, but it's not, I don't know, it's not exciting stuff. None of, nothing's interesting. A lot of lumbar scientific stuff. Okay. So now we have Ellie. He is joining right now. There we go. Still spinning. I don't know why. Let's see. There we go. Okay, Ellie, can you hear me? I can. All right. Okay, we can. Oh, he hung up. So we got him and we lost him. Okay. Let's get him again. Not sure what happened. Let's get him back on. Um, by the way, someone commented he got the uh, cancel culture. No, no, I don't know what happened. Menachem, you got the um, the book on the Memorial Goddess from Roman Rambam. Yeah, that came by air. Uh, I actually just did a show today with my Shimaiman on the Safer, but I'm going to wait to release that. He wants to wait till the book's available. It, it's a, the Safer. It's supposed to be in uh, shortly, I think. It was supposed to be nine days. I don't know what's going on, but it's coming by boat. Okay, there we go. No, it's only available by air. Not true. Sold out in Bigelizen and Mizrahi, by the way. Okay, now it's spinning, spinning. I don't know why. Can you hear me now? Yes. How are Not you? Sure what we lost you there. Okay. Um... 
so I, like I said in the intro a while ago, I'm uh, being joined by Ellie Fisher. And uh, I think your, your handle is ADDE Rabbi. I have to ask you why that's your handle. Uh, but uh, why don't you start off with giving the listeners a biography, of, you know, background about your, of yourself. Okay. So first of all, my bookcases are not Billy's, they're Ivar's. Um, mm. Kind of do-it-yourself Lego kit of, of bookcases. Um, my background is I'm from Baltimore. I learned in several yeshivas. I learned at Yeshiva University. I learned in Karen Biavna. I learned in Gush. Yeshivat Haratzion, a total of, um, spent uh, about nine years learning full-time or close to it. And um, currently a graduate student at Tel Aviv University working on, working under Moos Kahana, writing on Rav Usher Weiss. So we'll see how this, we'll see where this goes. So you're writing on a live person. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, this is this is a master's. When when it comes to the PhD, which is you know I have a, a master's from Azrieli at Shiv uh, University. Um, you know, ultimately, I really want to go for the PhD. I'm not. I'm not sure I'm going to continue with this um, because that does really you know pose a challenge. You know, writing on somebody who's alive. Um, and, and I'm a total fanboy um, of Ravusher. I I can't really, you know, it, it's hard to have that kind of critical detachment. So I'm focusing on some of his earlier writings, and I'm focusing on sort of where where he came from, meaning out of what world did he emerge, which is Claisenberg, pretty much, and and how he how he went, how he became who he became, right? And I think that it's, you know, obviously he's an extraordinarily gifted person. Um, and I don't think it was a naive process. I Meaning I think that he, he saw where he wanted to be. He saw where he wanted to go and sort of created a career for himself to go in, you know, to go in that direction. He reached out to the communities that he wanted to read. He modulated the way that he, his self-presentation in order to reach those, in order to reach those communities. And, you know, look, I think that Claudia Searle is fortunate to have him. If you see, you know, his, his leadership during uh, the past few months of COVID has really been, um, you know, his message has been steady. He's been saying the same thing from the beginning. Um, you know, obviously his sock is also, you know, some of his psukim have been, you know, there's already several volumes of chuvas that he wrote that came, that, that have come out in the last, um, in the last few months. But his message, his Musser message has been from the beginning, be safe, don't go to Shoal, be machmir, don't go to Shoal unless, you know, all these conditions are met, et cetera. Um, you know, um, that's been his consistent, that's what he's been talking about consistently. All right. Um, so yeah, now, that's, that's about, I want to jump in one thing before we continue about your, what you do now, do you, besides for uh, being a PhD student, uh, master's student, sorry, do you, yeah. do you have a personal connection with him? And also, does he know that you're writing this on him? 
yes and yes. I do have a personal connection with him. Uh, I have the pictures to prove it. Uh, he's, I've done some, if you see the, some of the English material that's come out recently, I've translated for him. Um, you know, I've, I've spoken to him several times over the last few weeks. Uh, yes, we have a personal connection. I, you know, I, I don't want to, I could talk a lot about that, but I, yeah, there's a lot to say. Uh, and he knows that I'm writing about him. You know, I, before I started, I actually went and did, not, not necessarily to ask his permission, but to let him know that this is what's going on. And I think that he was, you know, I, I got word later that he was a little bit nervous about it. And he wanted to talk to me about, he wanted to talk to me about what made him nervous. But, uh, but at the same time, he, you know, he was kind of tickled, like, it's, it's pretty cool. Like, I mean, think about it. Somebody's writing a, a master's about you. Somebody's writing a PhD about you. It's like, that's pretty cool. Absolutely. So besides for this, uh, you, what, what else do you do uh, for work, so to speak? Okay. So, yeah, that's what we're, we're talking. This is Sparum chatter. So let's chat about Sparum. So yeah. my main Parnassa, if you will, is translation. I translate books. Sort of fell into this, uh, wow, close to 13, probably about 13 years ago. The first, after, back in the States, before we moved, uh, we moved back to Israel in 2006. Before we moved back to Israel, um, you know, my last job in the United States was, was as the JLIC rabbi at the University of Maryland. My career was in you know, education, rabbinus, college campus rabbi. We moved to Israel for the first couple of years. It was a very difficult transition. I bounced to several, bounced around to several different jobs. Um, it was in the second year I was teaching in a seminary and that, that year I started doing a little bit of translation. My first client, I think was, there was some company, you know, some organization that I worked for, for a few months. I didn't continue with them. They, you know, they fired me, but translation, they still wanted me to translate for them. So they were my first clients. There were a few other things that I did and I found that I had a knack for it and I enjoyed it. So at that point, you know, I saw that the seminary life was not for me. Um, I sent emails to like a bunch of translation companies and I spent a good couple of years translating uh, you know, people's CVs, legal documents, boring stuff, really boring stuff. But at the same time, I was also starting to build a client base, you know, in the areas that you know, I, I, my preference was was in Torah related works. After a few years, I was on my own. I wasn't going to third party, you know, translation companies anymore. And a few years after that, um, I was sort of hit my stride with the Jewish, uh, you know, in the in the Jewish studies world. So at this point, you know, my my I'm a freelancer, but my clientele is a it, it's a pretty good list of you know, who's who in the, uh, in the world of uh, either, you know, both academic and um, non-academic 
Judaica, particularly halacha. So if you want to talk about recent projects or projects, you know, things that are going to be coming out now, uh, I don't know when it's coming out, but Rav Nachman Rabinovich's Misilot Dilvavam, which is a phenomenal work, um, that'll be coming out soon. He was Nifter around, um, he was Nifter soon after Pesach. Rav Nachum Rabinovich. This was this translation was done a few years ago, but it's sort of been in limbo because they didn't want to publish it. He could, on one hand, he couldn't review it, and on the other hand, um, they didn't want to publish it before, you know, while he was still alive, him not having reviewed it. So that's coming out soon. I translated a book by uh, Moshe Halbertal on Suffolk in Tanaitic literature, and here I can give a shout out to. Menachem Butler, who has already posted a couple of questions, he first made the connection, uh, you know, he first connected me with uh, Professor Halbertal a number of years ago when he was working on his Rambam book. The, one of the chapters in the Rambam book, uh, Maimonides' Life and Thought, published by Princeton, one of the chapters, the chapters on the Parish Mishnayos, is, I, I translated that. Uh, the rest of the book was translated by uh, Judge... Linsider, Joel, Lin, Judge Joel Linsider, Olaf Shalom, who was an outstanding translator, passed away several years ago while working on that book. And so that was the chapter that he didn't translate. Uh, and, and now you have this other book uh, coming out by Professor Halbertal. It's a fascinating book on how, uh, how Chazal, in the time of the Mishnah, the Tanoim, they were almost like obsessed with Suffolk, right? How many, how many androgynoses do you think anyone, any member of Chazal, any Tana ever actually met in person? Probably not too many androgynoses, probably not too many tumtums, but the, but the, the, the case of the tumtum and the androgynos, you know, it takes up a considerable space, right? You know, they talk about it much more than it actually occurs in nature because they're, sort of attracted to these borderline cases. They're attracted to these cases of vagueness and uncertainty and doubt. And, you know, he sort of explores several different avenues of that. He explores, um, you know, when it comes to Yuxin, when it comes to Isser Veheter, when it comes to Mominos, each one of those is a different chapter, and Tuma and Tara. Fascinating, fascinating book. It'll be published by Brown, and I think it might even be out. Um, so there's that. I'm presently working on two books, which I hope to finish really soon. One is a book called Nishmat Habayit. Uh, you familiar with it? That's from Magid? It was, did it, was it published by Magid? I think it may have been published by Magid. It's a book of Sherlock Sajuvos that was published by Nishmat. The, the writers, the authors are all women. Right. And yeah. Go ahead. No, I, I think that's what you're, I think it's Magid. I, I think I remember the book. Yeah, I remember what you're talking about. Okay. I, remember, I, I, I never saw it live, but I saw it like online. I, I, maybe posted about it. I don't remember. Yeah. So it's a fascinating book and it's, there's a lot to say about what they're trying to do, what they're trying to accomplish. It's a great book. Uh, it's really well done. These are questions that were posed either through their website or, you know, through their hotline. 
it's all Shiloh's pertaining to Hilchos Nida, Hilchos Tara, Tara Samashpacha. And there are, you know, it's combination of, on one hand, you know, you have like a certain, um, a sympathetic approach. Uh, and then you also have this combination of um, medical, gynecological perspectives together with classical halachic discussion. Um, it's really, it's a unique book and I've enjoyed translating it very much and I've gotten quite an education translating it. Like, I feel like uh, I can almost, uh, I'll be able to skip a year of medical school if I ever decide to go that route. Um, you know, I had this running joke with my wife that uh, if you've ever seen the TV show Elmo's World, you know, he'll always start with like, guess what Elmo was thinking about today? Elmo's thinking about bananas. So I'd like get to a tube and I'd like text my wife and I'd be like, guess what Elmo's thinking about today? Elmo's thinking about bloody hemorrhoids. Uh, you know, we had a good time with it. But, you know, I, I know more than I would ever want to know about hemorrhoids now. Um, and, you know, and, and how and, and what the Chassam Sofer thought about them, and what the Nodavi Huda thought about them. So, yeah, it's. Um, mm -hmm. Who's publishing it? Who's going to be published by? It's going to be published by by Magid. Right. I assume so. OK, that's interesting. And what's the what's the other book that you're working on right now? So the other book is the next volume of Pinine Halacha. And that's, I'm editing it. I don't translate it. The translator is Dr. Yochevet Cohen. And so I edit after she's done with it. And um, this is, I think, the eighth volume that I'll be, that I'll have worked on for that series. Um, this one is on Yamim No Rahim. Only in the last, I have about 10 pages left. I might even finish it before Shabbos. Oh, wow. I'm hoping. That, that, that's good. Yeah, okay, so I guess we'll leave that aside for a little because I want to get uh, a little bit about being Allah or Malam a little bit later. So let, let's start off, I guess, by discussing, obviously, the translating work. So you said how you just got into it, but did you receive any, like, did you... You training about it. You learn. You just taught, is it like self-taught kind of thing that you taught yourself. How do you how do you decide to go about translating it? Well, what's your methods that you use? Okay, so I never have and I don't have any formal training in translation. I do have formal training in writing, and probably the best experience that I had in terms of learning how to how to write was with Professor Will Lee of Yeshiva University. I was fortunate my first semester at Yeshiva College, I was in a class. It started off with like 30 people. Once people realized how much work it was going to be, <laughs> most people dropped out. We ended up with like five or six people in the, in the class. And we, we learned how to write and we learned how to write well. Um, like real basic strunk and white stuff. And so that was one thing. And then the second thing was that while, while I was at the University of Maryland, I started blogging. And I think blogging, if you look at my first blog post, you'll see that they're just poorly written. They're, you know, poorly punctuated. I was just using it as a scratch pad. But as 
I kept writing, you know, I sort of found my voice and sort of learned that way through practice, just writing a lot to, to become a good writer. And I think that that's the key. The key to being a good translator is, is being a good writer. Is being a good, well, let's say, let's put it this way. The key to being a good translator is being a good reader and a good writer. Meaning you have to read and understand what you're reading, but not just, you know, you read it and understand it. You understand on a very, very deep, you really have to turn over, turn things over multiple times. You know, you might spend a long time on one sentence. It's a really deep, profound engagement with the text. And then after you've gone, after you've gone through it, after you've read it, after you've learned it, after you've internalized it, you have the process of now I have to reproduce it. Uh, I have to reproduce the, you know, this text in, in a sense, in, in my own world, in my own words. Meaning I'm not, I'm not, it's not a technical mechanical reproduction of what the author wrote, but it's a process of internalization, meaning I understand it, I grasp it, it becomes part of me in some profound way. And then I reproduce it in, in my words, trying to make it, trying to, to, to cover as much meaning, trying to reproduce as much meaning as existed in the first, in, you know, in the original, in the translation. Right, which is almost, so you're not doing like what David, David Tibbins did, which was like the word for word, but rather really what the Rambam famously told him to do is really what you're aiming for, so to speak, for Sfarim terms. I didn't know that about Ibn Tibbin, that he was, you know, like obviously sometimes his translation is awkward, but I didn't realize that he was really doing a one-to-one -one translation. Th that's my understanding. I think um, mm -hmm. it's talked about a lot in the, the Mifa Mishotero one introduction, they talk about it. I think the Rambam told him to kind of do what you're doing and to, to write it in the new language that he's translating to, you know, to keep the same thought. But I think I'm not an expert on this, but maybe I thought maybe you knew it. I, I, my understanding was it was kind of a word for word kind of thing, but maybe other people know better. Interesting. What about Ruvihuda Al Harizi? I mean, I'm all disappointed. Ibn Tibbin was like one of my culture heroes. I don't know. You never heard this about him? Never heard that about him. I have to look it up. I'll clarify that. But I, I think so. I, I still obviously very important. And he was a Russian who translated. I'm not uh, disparaging him in any way, but I think that that was kind of the way it was done. Um, Interesting. But. That, that's cool. what I recall. Now, I wanted to ask you just, we should clarify that exactly. You only translate Hebrew to English. So you translate into English. Is that true? That's correct. Uh, based on what I just said, you know, you really, you can only, it's very difficult to acquire a language to the degree that you can be a good writer in it. Right? It's, I've tried writing in Hebrew. I just don't have the same style. You don't have the same panache. You don't, you can't express yourself in the same way. Right. It's much more difficult. Um, you know, it, it, it's difficult to, it's difficult enough to translate, but you really need the, the flexibility and the agility that you can only have in your native language. Right. Which makes sense. So, so now I have a question for you going back 
we just discussed, you gave a couple of books before, a couple of ideas. Those books are, first of all, they very different. And not only different, yeah. there's different intended audiences for them as well. Or it was an academic book or it's a halacha book or, you know. So does it, does your translation work differ depending on, number one, what type of book it is? And number two, the intended or perceived audience that you're writing for? Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, and sometimes, I would even go further, sometimes the author will give me discretion, will say, like, look, you understand who this audience is, you understand American English audiences better, who do you think we should tailor this to? Um, you know, sometimes it's simple things, sometimes it's, right, like, when are you going to say Bavli or Yerushalmi? When are you going to say Babylonian and Palestinian Talmud? Right. When are you going to avoid saying Palestinian? When are you going to, um, yeah, all kinds of questions like that. But sometimes, you know, like how, how dense do you want to make the footnotes? And, you know, do, do you, things like, do you want to, do you want to transliterate the letter Kuf as a K or as a Q? Right, like bava comma, Q, like where comma is spelled Q A M A. That's like it's a certain affectation that you're doing that because you're specifically you're you're working according to the style guide of you know you're not necessarily going for readability, but you're going for technical accuracy. Right. Whereas you know if I'm writing for a generally you know, for a more Balabatish crowd, it's gonna, I'm going to spell it the way that it's normally spelled and the way that people, um, the way that people would naturally spell it. Like how you spelling halacha, for example, C-H or K-H? Which word? Halacha. Okay, K-H, for sure. I'm a big right, fan I of know. the K. I'm a big fan of the K-H. Why is that? I just think it... I think it makes more sense because there's there's not the ch. I think that that convention that ch makes the h sound comes from the German where it does make that sound, and in English it really doesn't make that sound. It makes a ch sound, and I don't want people mispronouncing it halacha. So if they don't know what a kh is, then they'll look into it, but they they know that it's not halacha. The other reason is that it keeps the meaning like shin and sin. You have s and et's h. Um, I like the fact that, you know, for a cuff, you'll have, you'll have a K and for a huff, you'll have a KH. I think it just, it, it preserves the, it preserves more of the Hebrew root. So I'm a, I'm a fan of the KH, but what can I tell you? I have a son whose name is Zachariah and I spell it Z-E-C-H. Um, I have a daughter whose name Everybody spells it. See, by the way, it's interesting. In names, you never see somebody, you know, Chaim, K-H-A-I-M, or Zachai. You never right. see that. Never. Yeah. Or with an under dot. Why, but why, well, why is it? It's also interesting to me why it's C-H. I never thought, like, maybe you're saying, maybe it's because, in especially in the more, I don't know what you want to call it, Haredi, Yeshivish, whatever, well, they always use C-H. Maybe it's because mm -hmm. of, you're saying the German, maybe a lot of stuff was translated from German, especially of Hirsch and all that stuff. Is that, I have no idea. I'm spitballing. Where did it come from that everything is C-H? I think that's where it comes from. I think that that's where it comes from, that the, the German translations, um, and, let's, and let's be honest, most of the translations until, you know, 
until the first part of the 20th century, the works that were translated were translated into German. Um, if you're talking about into Latin, into Latin characters, you had some Latin, you had some, um, you, you, but you didn't have much. There was not that much translated into Hungarian or Polish or Russian. I don't think not as much as German. German was the language, the lingua franca. But I was curious that now into the English, everything's becoming CH. As I'm saying, why in, in, there's always halacha. You open any let's say, art scroll, everything is CH. They never do KH there, right? Feldheim, it's all CH. Yeah. It's an interesting question. Because right. if you look at, at some of the old, if you look at some of the old, like the Jewish encyclopedia, I think mm-hmm. they have, they, they think they have KH there. I'm not 100% certain. I can check. I have it on my shelf. Mm-hmm. But, uh, that's interesting. So yeah, but, but right. So that's something about like spelling. But um, I guess do you also translate like? And I guess for an academic audience, you would say you would translate more of a not a higher English, but like the what's the word? The actual the structure. Everything's written. It's going to be written. Well, the original is going to be more academic than just a regular halacha safer, for example. But yeah. you try to keep that as more well under dots and you know, and, and the apostrophes and like just the, the diacritics. And the actual like wording, the actual set, the actual text, the translating the words, you also, I assume is also going to be more academic in an academic book, like Halbertal's yeah. example, right? Yeah. So no, but Halbertal, we, we wanted to make it readable. It's, it is for an academic, it's an academic work, but we want it to be readable. And I think that that's something that's, you know, his books for the most part are very readable. Right. Meaning his, his intended audience is, not only academic and and i try to make things readable i always try to make things readable well that, that makes sense so, so uh, yeah. similar question along the same lines how do you retain the style of the original of the new language the translation i think that's probably the hardest thing the hardest thing is to retain the style and I'll tell you a story. There was, I translated a, a sample chapter of a book, which I would characterize it. The, it's a Hebrew book. It's, a, it's about Tanakh, but it's, it's written from a very learned, but at the same time, somewhat irreverent perspective. You know, and it's chapters on various episodes in Tanakh. You know, so I, the one that I translated was on Sefer Rut. And there were some, there, there was some innuendo there. There was some irreverence there. And I translated it and I tried to retain all of that. And it was then sent to an academic, it was then sent to an a- academic press for, for review, which was why I was hired to translate the chapter. And they responded, they sent back to the author, like, I don't know if you want to use this translator. They're using, you know, the, the tune that you know, the tone that they're trying to set here is totally non-academic. They're, you know, like they, they use way too much idiom. They use way too much vernacular. You know, if you're trying to, if you're trying to get a, if you're trying to get an academic publisher, then you're going to want to find a translator who knows how to do academic translation. And my response was, I translated according to the style that you, you know, I'm trying to reproduce your work. I'm not trying to, 
It's not an academic book. Right. It was just, it was a funny thing. And, you know, listen, no worries. I still got paid for the job. The book was not published by uh, an academic publisher. Uh, and I think that the, I think even the, the publisher didn't realize what kind of book it was. Mm. So a lot of these academic presses, they see books, they seem to want to make the books like not readable. I, I don't know. Like you have to break your head to read the book. Not sure why. Yeah, I think some of them are better than others. I, 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 listen, I don't think it's intentional, but most people are lousy writers. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, probably. In order to make it readable, you have to really invest in it. Right. And I, that's the bottom line. I, it almost seems like some of them want it. Like some of these academic books, I know I've interviewed a couple authors, like the history books, they're written they're more accessible for the general public and people read it. It's not only that the topics are sometimes obscure, the books are written really awful or hard to read obscure English. It's like ridiculous. It's not readable. No one opens it. Maybe they don't care. I don't know. Yeah. I think that, you know, people have a lot of different reasons for writing books and because they want other people to read them is not always at the top of the list. Sometimes it's just, you know, I got to publish a book because, you know, I want to get tenure. I got to publish a book because I want to whatever. Um, right. Because I have something to say because I want people to read it because I want people to engage with it. It's not always at the top of the list. Yeah. It's also pretty sometimes evident in the price of the book these publishers set for talking academic books. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. They set a price and they want every library to buy it. And that's how it is. There's, uh, I want to go back, circle back to one thing that you said in terms of the process of translation and that it's not a mechanical process. It's, a, it's sort of like, it, it's a very, I would say it's a very intimate encounter with a text. And that's also a source of anxiety. Ultimately, the words that are on the page are the translator's words, not, not the writer's words, which is, you know, you, it, it's, the book is the author's, right? The information is the author's, but the writing, the writing is the translator's. And, and that's a source of anxiety. If there's something that I messed up, if there's something that I misunderstood or could have, especially if I'm talking about halacha, talking about Rav Malamed. When I first started with Rav Malamed and we were working on Hilchel Shabbos, I was editing it. And so I developed a style guide and I developed some other things. And we, we had a few people that applied to be translators. So I gave them a text to translate. It was the same text for everybody. And it included the word in Hebrew, it included the word plata. Okay. I really wanted to see how they translate the word plata. How would you translate plata? Plata. Okay. So that's one possibility. One possibility is just to transliterate it. And that's a good possibility. That's what I do. Well, okay. Yeah. Other people, I would say most people, translated it as hot plate, uh, which is probably where the word plata comes from. That, but, but it's halachically incorrect. Right. That's the problem. Right. A hot plate is something that you can cook you get on. Out of it. 
Yeah, so you should transliterate it. <laughs> right. So for the most part, we transliterate it, but we have to define it the first time. And um, the first time, the, the correct technical name of that device is a warming tray. Gotcha. Like if you go to in a hotel and you say like, you know, they keep things on warming trays. I saw that uh, David Beshevkin just asked how Rav Malamed got into Rav Tzadok. Uh, I'm pretty sure he got into Rav Tzadok from Rav Yitzchak Ginsburg. I'm pretty sure that Rav Yitzchak Ginsburg was his Rebbe in Rav Tzadok. So but hold on, what? I'm, I'm not certain, but I think so. He's asking why Rav Malamed published the republished the works of Rav Tzadok. I thought that was Aretzio, not Harbracha. Am I confused? No, the first book that oh, Rav Malamed, yeah, yeah, the first book that Rav Malamed published was some sort of critical edition or like a republication of one of Rav Tzadok's books. Not sure which one, but like in the late nineteen eighties. No, I'm sorry, I want to. Clarify. It is Har Bracha that did them, but Aretzion is doing the Pritzadik now. To clarify, they're they're doing the Pritzadik. They're in the middle. Ah, okay. Yeah, he did. I don't think he did Pritzadik. Um, no, but back, I don't back, remember what he did first. Maybe it was Rasise Laila. Could be. I wanted to ask you something also similar to what you were, we were just discussing. Was before we get back to the Tzadik, David, what is it? Let's say that's something like that. Let's say it's a Pnini Halacha. You get to volume on Hilchas Shabbos or Hilchas Pesach. Do you feel that? Do you first read the book, read the Sefer, and understand what it's talking about? Or you just jump in, okay, I'm going to read paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. How, what's the process? What do you, when you Take something like that. So it's a, at this point with Rav, with Rav Malamed, I'm comfortable enough with it that <laughs> I'm comfortable enough with it that, I mean, there are entire paragraphs that I can lift from earlier things. Like I'm, I'm comfortable with his style. I'm comfortable with his, you know, with what he's trying to accomplish. So I can just, I can jump right in without reading the whole book first. But there are other books, like when I, you know, when I started with the Nishmat book, I read a whole bunch of chapters before, before moving on with it, before, you know, before really undertaking the translation. Um, I thought that, you know, I, I wanted to get a sense of the book, you know, and sometimes I do that just to, just to give a, you know, just to give a price quote sometimes. Like I want to see, you know, I want to give an idea. I want to get an idea of what this is and I want to give an idea of what this is. And yeah. Right. I got you. Now, since David's asking about Malava, let's go there. That's something you're translating, you translate a lot of volumes. Let's move a drop away from translation. I think we, we discussed it. Yeah. What but is edited? Yeah. Who is Rav Muhammad? So who, so who is he? Who's he putting out recently? You actually uh, translated a fascinating one that's not part of the Pinei Lacha series called Um I want to discuss that. Um, I actually have a Hebrew one. The English one wasn't it obviously was something that was really sold in the stores in Lakewood, but uh, let's back up. Start talking about Malamed, I guess. Tell everyone how you got involved okay. and give his background people that may not know of him. Okay, so Rav Malamed is he's the Rav of the community in the Rosh Yeshiva of Harbracha. That doesn't tell his story. His story is this. He, his father is a Rosh Yeshiva, was one of the close Talmudim of Rav Tzvi Huda Kuk. He grew up in that world. He grew up in the world of 
America has arrived, 100% died in wool. His mother, in addition, you know, his mother was one of the founders of Arutz Sheva. And, you know, he obviously was a very bright, talented kid, young man. And at a certain point, I think he started writing a halacha column in one of the Arutz Sheva publications. And it got very popular. And eventually he turned the columns into a book. And that turned into this series, which is now 17, 18 volumes, called Penine Halacha, which is, for all intents and purposes, it's the Datili Omishol Hanarach. It's it is the go-to halacha sefer, halacha set, that's being used in the Israeli Datilumi world, and I mean the entire gamut of the Datilumi world, from you know the datlash, you know the ones who wear like the the half shekel yarmulke, to the guys who are you know to the the hardcore hilltoppers, oh, pretty much the whole spectrum of the Datilumi um, uses pnine halacha. The schools use Panine Halacha, and they even have Panine Halacha for kids. You know, they're, they're you know, picture books of Panine Halacha for Hilcha Shabbos. When it's also one of the interesting things about him is that, on one hand, he's very much rooted in that Datilumi, America's Harav world but he's really not afraid to sort of go out on his own. This happened recently in, you know, he, he participated in a panel discussion that included a reform rabbi and he got a lot of heat for it, but he wrote a series of columns why, explaining why he did this. Explain, so he definitely broke with consensus. He's broken with consensus on a couple of other things on Harabayit. He's gone up to Harabayit. He's actually in favor of, he's in favor of civil marriage, or not, I wouldn't call it civil marriage, a civil alternative to marriage through the Rabbanut for Israelis who want that. There are, um, that's, he's not afraid to go out on his own. And I think that he once said to me that when he wrote that book, Simchat Habayit, when he wrote that book, Simchat Habayit, he, on one hand, he's dealing with, he's dealing with topics that are very sensitive topics. And on the other hand, you know, he thinks that it's very important that these topics are dealt with. And he said that while I was writing, he said, I knew that my rebellion would never write such a book, but I wanted to write it in a way that my rebellion could read it without being embarrassed. And I think that that's, it's a good, you know, get there of, of where he's coming from. That on one hand, he sees himself very much a part of that world, but at the same time, really not afraid to go out on his own. And the other interesting thing is that he's, he thinks about halacha in, I would call it in a, in a civilizational way. He's trying to understand how the different components of halacha sort of fit together to produce a culture, a society, a way of life, a country, a nation, 
you know, he thinks about the Torah politically, meaning how, how does halacha articulate a political system? And I don't know if we've had someone who's done this systematically, you know, across the entire corpus of halacha, I don't know, maybe since Rambam. You, I know that's a, it's kind of rather wild. Let me give you an example. I clarify, yeah, what do you mean by that? Let me give you an example. So he has a chapter where he talks about Trumas and Maestros. Okay, we all know Trumas and Maestros, Maestro Shani and Maestro Ani. And he asks a question that, on one hand, it's such an obvious question. On the other hand, I don't know if anybody's asked it before. Miser, think about Miser Ani for a second. Miser Ani, once every three years, about 9% of the GDP is given to, to the poor. How does that make any sense? If you're trying to give to the poor, why not say that every year you take a second miser, and of that second miser, two-thirds go to Yerushalayim as miser Shani, and one-third goes to the poor as miser Ani. Why not give them 3% of the GDP every year instead of giving them 9% of the GDP every third year? What do you... like? If you're a poor person, how does it help you? You're, you're, you're eating hand to mouth. Right, I gotcha. How does, it, how does it help you to have, you know, once every three years you get a nice check? Right? So what he explains is, now you can take or leave his explanation, but I think that the question is just, it's a great question. So he says, you know, he sort of, he says that on one hand, you want, you know, the goal of, first of all, he says, in terms of subsistence, there's enough in, you know, Leket and Shikha and Peya and Peret and Ololos and Stamtsdaka that the poor people won't starve. That's, you know, he starts with that. So you're not going to starve. And then he says, so we're not talking about subsistence. We're not talking about making sure that people don't go hungry. What we're trying to do is we're trying to give people you know, a certain dignity that they can, they can go do something else. They can retrain to get a new job. They can, you know, do something to break the cycle of poverty. And in which case, he says, it makes a lot more sense to give a more concentrated boost once every three years, right? So that maybe their kids will learn, you know, we'll see what it is to have a better life and the kids will try to pull themselves out or they'll try to pull themselves out. Meaning you don't want to create reliance on welfare, on the other, I mean, on the other hand, you don't want people to starve to death. So instead of, so if you, if you, so the Torah envisions a system whereby you get a larger welfare check, but only once every three years. Now, again, you can take it or leave it, but this is, you, you can like that answer, you cannot like that answer, but this is how he's thinking about halacha. He's thinking about halacha in terms of social welfare and in terms and and, and in terms of. How does the Torah, what's, what type of economic system and economic social justice does the Torah envision? It's really, it's unique, I think. And he's a great writer. He writes very clearly and right. accessibly. 
Right. It also sounds like he's covering a lot of halakha. I don't know if you meant that before or discussed since Rambam. I mean, Arachashulchan obviously covered everything as well, like the Rambam. Yeah. No, I didn't mean that just that he covers everything, but that yeah, he's seen to clarify that. Yeah. As, as a civil, meaning, if you think about where does the Rambam start, the Rambam starts with theology. Right. Um, explaining who is a Kaddish Baruch Hu, what is a Kaddish Baruch Hu, how does the Rambam end? Rambam ends by describing the perfect society, right? right. What is society going to look like in Yemosa Mashiach? Right. So in, in a certain sense, what the Rambam is doing is he's giving you, you know, and he, he makes this clearer in, in the Moreh, but, you know, but, but the, the Mishnah Torah is, is a recipe for that. Right? He's, you're starting with the principles and you're showing how those principles lead to you know to a to the production of a, of, a, of a civilization that the Torah envisions and in that sense I think that you know Rav Muhammad's not the Rambam but he's thinking he thinks of halacha in that in that way he sees halacha as almost like a, a constitution for a halacha based society that embodies certain values, ways of thinking, ways of being. And once you realize that, you see that it comes, it comes up in a whole bunch of different places. It comes up in a lot of different, um, a lot of different areas of halacha. I mean, it's interesting. So I'm not really familiar with Fenin Halacha. Um, it's not really here. Simchas Bayas Rukhase was. I know you met you alluded to it. You just actually translated it. Um, yes. You actually mentioned what exactly it was. Now there is an additional volume, uh, the Harchava volume. Is, is there is there plans to translate that or no? That's only going to be available. No, the, no, the Harchava is like it's like translating the Ketzos. You know what I mean? Like nobody's ever going to translate the Ketzos. It's just you know, if you can handle it, you'll handle it in the original. Right. Exactly. I mean, even the Simchas it was it was you know interesting, safer, obviously. Um, yes. Let me probably give a little bit of a background what it is. It's, you can. Yeah, I will. Uh, is essentially he, he discusses two mitzvahs, the mitzvah of Ona and the mitzvah of Piri of Arivia. So, and, and he addresses along the way a whole bunch of different, you know, all, all the different topics that come up. First of all, what are the chiv of Ona? And he, you know, he describes he basically describes um, a halachic view of sexuality, and it's probably more sex positive than any other halacha sefer around. Um, I mean, halacha sefer, right? There are more, there are plenty, there are plenty of, you know, self-help type books. Um, but as a halacha sefer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he goes through he goes through the issues, the auxiliary issues, issues of Hotzazer Levatala, issues of um, of same sex attraction. He talks about abortion. He talks about what is the ideal family size. Uh, funny Divash. He yeah, um, yeah. Actually, Davish, you know, was sold in Lakewood, and they had a stack sold out so i mean it's uh it's a it's it's definitely um it, it fills a niche there's a market for it uh, it's there's, interesting. There's and smart. i think dafka in the hebrew dafka in the hebrew right 
Yeah, Dafkin Hebrew. I mean, there are spar written on this topic. Obviously, like I said, not everyone here, not everyone's going to be masking to his what he's paskining or what he's going with. But mm-hmm. you know, there are halachas far written on these topics that are sold in the store. I mean, like you're saying, these are these are you know important halachas. People people are looking at them. No one's saying that anybody mm-hmm. here is going with them and it's 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 paskining with them. That's you know a different thing. I definitely ask a good question. It's a part of the halacha. It's not. He does. Why? Why is it not part of the halacha series? So now it is. When he first published it, he sold it separately. He did, it was not sold as part of the sets because they felt like you know it was like, you know, if the rest of Hapinei Halacha is PG, this is PG thirteen or whatever. Like it's it deals with more sensitive topics. In English, um, it is sold together with Pinei Halacha when we get around to actually selling it as a set. Like once we get to a certain number of volumes, we're going to market Pinei Halacha in the U.S. as a set, ten volumes or something. Um, and it'll be part of that. But initially it was set apart just to be you know, like, okay, it's a different color because it is it is a little bit different. You know, it, it doesn't touch on the same kind of topics. Right, for sure. So that's, okay. It's not a good, it's not a good bar mitzvah present. No. So I, I think it's, you know, it's something interesting and people definitely have seen it. And in general, it's interesting what you're saying about Pina Halacha just to know about, to know about his svarim. And in a lot of people... As he said, the IT world is you know world renowned, but in the more Shiva's world, he's not necessarily known. I was not interested. If you look online, look at a picture. He's got like an up hat and a frack and a beard. He looks like a Shiva Shiva. Yeah, he wears. He's wearing a knit yarmulke under the hat. Right, but you so don't you know. see that. Yeah, but you don't in the picture. You don't. You don't really see that. So it's definitely interesting. Now, one, one, I want to get to one more thing here to close out this show. Is you're involved? You started. You co-founded with a project called. Um, what exactly is it and how did you uh, get involved how did you decide to found this oh my phone is about to die um that's not good nope that means we'll lose you yes almost at the end if it has like that oh we lost him there he goes so let's see if 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 he comes back on then we'll get him back on if not then we'll just uh, end here. I was going to ask him about his Amapa project. I'm not super familiar. <laughs> it's some sort of project where I think they trace, I think the is all the chuvas, where all the chuvas go to, I think, um, different places. The Gedalim wrote the, you know, who who, who wrote chuvas to them from the various places. Um, but you can find, I think it's, I'll try to link it in the show's notes. Um, yeah, Yubesh is very busy with uh, the I'm not condoning anything or saying you're pro anything, I'm not defending anything. Same thing with his talk about Zimbabwe. It's something that he's a big person in the IT world, people should know about it, whether pro or against. I'm not, I'm not here to say I'm a moderator, you know, I'm interviewing, I'm not saying anything, I'm just interviewing someone, let him talk about his opinions, and that's it. Same with Simcha Um, who else wrote on Sneas? Yeah, so there are other farm written on this. For example, he didn't get very far, but Chelkas Binyamin, um, Rebinyamin Kohn, who's in Chaim Berlin, or Five O'Connor, just wrote on Pre-Rivia, the first five Simonim. It's a topic that's written, that's what I'm saying. It, it, it won't open peasant. It's not, I'm not, no one, it's an important topic. I think it's a very interesting topic as well. I'm telling you, the safe was sold here, it sold out in a stack, of like 10 or 15 was gone in a, in a week or two. It's, it's, you know, people, people find such a safer interesting, I think, and unique. And so, and it's halacha at the end of the day. You don't have to be masking to him. I'm not, and any of this stuff. No, I'm not trying to be like, oh, I'm not defending. I'm just saying, like, in general, he, you know, 
Ali has uh, interesting points, and that's his own uh, opinions. I think it says somebody saying, you know, retweets do not equal endorsement, same kind of thing. Um, okay, I don't know. His phone died. He gave us a little bit of a heads up. So if he rejoins, if not, I guess we'll end here. We'll have to retalk to him about his Amapa project at a different time. Um, I think we should hand it. Do you have any more questions? No more, no more, no more questions. We're done. I think we've given this long enough. We should just uh, end the show over here. I think. I think so. Um, all right. Thank you, everyone, for uh, joining tonight. And uh, I don't know. We didn't ask him. He got cut off. That was when I started jumping to the next one. I know. You want to know if he speaks English. I don't know. I, I wonder if he's speaking English. I don't know. Um, also, I, I, I didn't. I should have pressed him a little more. Once, once, once we had he hung up, we can give a little bit more notes on the show. I should have asked a little more. What, what, he, what did he mean? Do you know anyone know what, that's a shulchan aruch of the? the I don't know. I want if he comes back, I want to ask him that. I want to follow up with him. So they, they learn Mr. Brewer, They learn shulchan, shulchan aruch, or you mean it's a hindig like halacha lomaisa they asking from it, or that's like the like the shulchan aruch. That's like Mr. Brewer. Do you have the same question as me? What, what does he mean by that? Ah, oh, he's back on. Well, what do you, I want to ask him that because I'm I'm curious to know what he meant by that. Um, I'm I'm curious to know actually. Let's see if Ellie could rejoin us over here or not. Um, let's see. No, you just joined again, but you didn't join. I'll invite as guest. We want to have a lot of them. We could join David. You can call in with with. Uh, with Ellie together, and you guys can sit and fight it out together. You can, you can have two guests at once. Uh, you can't join in. Your phone is dead. You can join in front of a tablet. You're on the computer. You can. Okay. Very well. So um, thank you very much for coming on. We'll have to leave the Hamapa discussion. We didn't get there, but people can definitely check it out um, if they want to. Are you joining, Ellie, are you joining the computer? By the computer, you can join. It's only on a tablet or a phone. There's no other way to join. So, um, oh, well. We'll end over here, I guess. All right, we'll get to that a different time. Thank you very much for joining. Ellie says thank you very much. Yeah, but ask him to type answer for here, it's fine, but then it won't be good for, for, uh, for sales. Okay, Ellie, two, two questions, we'll end off the show. Number one, Divas wants to know, does Ramalama speak English? So you can at least type that, and I'll narrate this. And number two, I wanted to know, so just type an answer to that, and I'll read it off. The other thing I wanted to know is, what did you mean when you said that the Pini Allah is a shulchan aruch for the deity? Is, is that, does that mean that's something that they paskin from? Like Allah Chalamai said, that's like their go-to? Or is, but, do, but, but do they learn shulchan aruch or do they learn from Mishnah Bura, aruch shulchan, or is that chayadam, or no, they learn, just learn Pini Allah, that's like what they learn. Like, you know, in the Shiva Shul, they learn Mishnah Bura a lot. Just if you can clarify that thing. Okay, so Ellie says that he doesn't think Ramalama speaks English, he has never left Israel. So, okay, for Dibesh has his answer to that one. And let's see if you can answer the other question about the uh, what you meant by that comment on the Shulchan Aruch. Then we'll wrap it up. Um, just to answer that question. So it's equivalent to Shabura. That's what they learned. That's very interesting. I, I Okay. Very interesting to know. So Dibesh, you got your answers. You'll have to go read them back. Okay, Ellie, thank you very much for joining us. It's a shame that your phone died. And it's quite late by you and I saw anyways. So uh, have a good night.